Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. This week, we have a very special guest, James Samataro, the managing partner of Strook, Strook, and Levin's Miami office. And we just recently uh, published a blog post about as music streaming subscribers grow, so do the amount of uh, DMCA requests. And James has a lot uh, to talk about on this subject. So James, what have you noticed in terms of the DMCA requests in recent years as opposed to the past? So when you're dealing with copyright law, there's always going to be the issue that the technology is always going to outpace the law. The DCMA was enacted over a decade ago, and from the perspective of the music labels and Hollywood, but more so the music, uh, the record labels and the artists, it's that the DCMA has not properly kept up with the times, and that it's a very inefficient system, and that there have been a series of judicial decisions that have come out since, since really 1999, but even a little bit before then, that have... Um, granted too broad of a safe harbor, too broad of a sanctuary. Um, the music industry's primary contention is that the safe harbor protections that are afforded by Section 512 should not apply to active distributors of music, particularly those who compete directly with services that obtain licenses. If you really wanted to boil this issue down in a nutshell, though, so the, the about 180 artists have combined together you know, many of the top names headlined from Paul McCartney to Taylor Swift, along with all the major music coalitions from ASCAP to BMI, the Music Publishers Association, the RIAA. Everyone in the industry has bonded together or banded together to use that pun. And they are <laughs> petitioning for DCMA reform. And they raise a number of very salient questions, uh, about 15 in total, as to what they identify as essentially a decay in the DCMA safe harbor protections that have occurred to the detriment of creative content owners and copyright holders. And their biggest issues are, again, that the safe harbor is too broad, that the notice and takedown system is improperly calibrated such that content owners are forced to divert valuable resources from creating content to sending what they deem to be minimally effective takedown notices. That the DCMA is essentially toothless as it applies to repeat offenders, that it's effectively, and they've used this term many times over in their, in their joint comment, that it's, it's a game of whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. You take something down and something pops right back up. And also they take, they take a really challenge what it means to be an expeditious takedown, noting that once the song gets up, it, you know, 48 hours, well, it may seem swift, is not all that swift in the internet age. Um, and they also take offense to the fact that there are active services that can be characterized or potentially characterized as passive intermediaries. And the way they paint it, and they have some very valid points, and there are some very serious questions, some very salient issues that need to be addressed, is that, you know, it's content owners versus the entire digital universe. And in some cases, it's just easier for a content holder to throw up his hands and say, it's, it's not really not worth it under the current DCMA for me to keep filing the takedown notices. Now, the cynic would say there's a, there's a lot more going on here. And what the cynic would say is this joint, this joint report, the, the statement is really aimed 
effectively at YouTube. Yes, it, it goes beyond YouTube. Google is mentioned throughout, but it's really YouTube. And, and there's, there's a reason why that's the case. There are, there's a disparity in the economics. So right now, when the record labels do deals with streaming services, which is how we started this conversation, talking about the, the boom in digital streaming, they're taking a percentage of revenue. If you use Spotify, for example, which is probably the best example, mm-hmm. you know, Spotify, two-tiered services, they have kind of the, the ad freemium, and, and then they have the paid subscription services. And if you use Spotify, they're all reports are they pay about 83 cents for every dollar to the copyright holder, every dollar of revenue. Under YouTube and Vivo, those are much different services. They're not streaming services. At the end of the day, YouTube is an ad business. And the value of those of every download on YouTube or Vivo is not going to be a set percentage of a minimum like in the streaming services. They're going to pay what the value of the ads are. So as the global market fluctuates, as ad inventory prices dropped, which they did last year and the year before, YouTube's ad revenue is going to either slow or decline. And as a consequence, the record labels and the content holders are going to get paid less. So if you look at the economics at the present moment, it's, a, it, it's and again, a little bit loose, but it's about 83 cents from Spotify and something closer to 55 cents from a Vivo or a YouTube, which generates a lot of traffic. So that's, that's a, not an insignificant economic disparity. And again, the cynic would say, well, it's curious as to the timing of this request for DCAM reform. Is it because YouTube's up for renegotiation with major record labels? Uh, and so make no, make no mistake about it. YouTube lies at the center of the storm mm-hmm. and there is an open demand by content holders to, to be able to extract either a higher dollar from YouTube, higher actual percentage of revenue, and not only that, what they believe to be more, uh, the need for more transparency. Uh, there are some skeptics that say, it's not just that we're only getting 55%, it's that not all the ad revenue is properly being reported. So that's kind of some of the backdrop for what the current reform is. Now you, you bring in a new president, you know, a Republican-controlled Congress, and you say, is this, in fact, the ideal time? Is this the right time to have a point of inflection to look at to see whether or not the DCMA is really in need of, of an overhaul? Is it in need of tightening? Is it in need of some legislation uh, that is going to maybe cure what some people believe are a string of judicial decisions that have not properly interpreted it since 1998? That, that's it in the, in the grand scheme. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of moving parts. I would say, so you talk about that YouTube is at the center of the storm. How do you think the DMCA, you know, should be changed to kind of deal with these like other services that are illegal, the YouTube to MP3 uh, stream ripping, as an example? How do you think like the law should be changed to uh, deal with that? Well, so that's a great question. And, you know, I do think if I'm YouTube, I'm going to answer this a little bit indirectly. If I'm YouTube, my argument is if you actually look at the fact that there has been such an increasing number of takedown notices. That is actually just kind of proof that the system is working, right? That, that the takedown notice is working, that we're getting them, we're, we're responding to them, and there's been immediate reaction. YouTube has come a very long way from maybe what you could characterize as a maverick pass when it first started. But that's one of the arguments that the content holders will say is what a lot of companies are doing is they'll start kind of with a maverick, maybe a loose respect for copyright, 
And then once they start generating actual audience and an actual platform, then they'll start complying with the, with the Section 5112. So it's, their concern in many aspects is not allowing companies to essentially leverage and build themselves based on not complying. Uh, you know, the law has, has evolved. And if you, if you take the approach, if you kind of take it a, a little way of the, the way the, the law has evolved, it started really in 2010, 2011 with the Grokster decision. And what Grokster, which actually was not the name of the case, but that's how it's become known, which mm-hmm. is the record line group, what that case said is, no, the test is going to be mismanners. You, you cannot intentionally encourage direct infringement. You can't employ software that's designed overwhelmingly for infringement. You can't market to and actively assist infringing users. Can't fail to implement meaningful te- technological barriers. So that was kind of the state of the law for a number of years. And then obviously there was the Viacom YouTube litigation, which had many iterations. It was it was decided by the Southern District of New York, went up to the Second Circuit, and came on back down. And essentially, mismanners, the mismanners test, was then replaced by the red flag knowledge slash willful blindness test. And the the kind of the distinction in in that body of law and that kind of precedent was what does actual knowledge mean? You know, is general awareness, does that mean that you know that there's prevalent infringing activity or general knowledge of infringing activity, or do you need to have actual or constructive knowledge of specific and identifiable infringing material? And that is actually where the law is right now. The law is it's not enough to just say, I believe there's infringing material on your website. Um, and, and that's really where the content holders want to push back. What they're saying is that one of the changes that we, need, we meaningfully need to have is we need to have a system where, and, and it's been kind of characterized with a clever phrase, which I think kind of works well, it's not just notice and take down, but it's going to be notice and stay down. And that's really what they oh. want. What they want to have is a policy where once you can, and it's, it's two things, notice and take down. So they don't want to have this kind of like toothless, uh, repeat offender policy where material can just pop down from maybe a legitimate site, but then just kind of just pop up elsewhere. So if, if, if there's a way to identify repeat offenders, whether it's cross sites, cross platforms, that they need to be identified and stymied and stamped out permanently. The, the other thing that there's that the copyright holders are saying is you, you can't hold us or make us beholden to specific identifiable works. You kind of loosen that up a little bit. And you have to allow us to do things like use a representative list, uh, which is actually built into the statute, but has been somewhat judicious, uh, judicially legislated out by a number of decisions, most, most probably most pertinently the VO case. Um, the other thing that, that the copyright content holders, music labels will, will argue is you, we willful or kind of willful blindfulness, it needs to be, what you can't create is a perverse situation where companies are not encouraged to look for infringement. And that there are a lot of tools and technology that that can be used to proactively filter out infringing from infringing material. And and, and they want them to be developed. And they're, they're essentially saying some of this burden needs to be shifted. And that's ultimately at the bottom, at the end of the day, and it's probably the most important point, which is this argument as to whose burden it is to police the marketplace really has its, its fundamental roots in the purpose of copyright law. You know, the primary purpose of copyright law 
is not necessarily to award the individual author, but it's rather to secure the general benefits for the public at large. So the, the belief is the encouragement of individual effort by personal gain is the best way to advance the public welfare. So if Sony can go out and make a lot of money on their copyright material, they're going to be economically incentivized to continue to discover artists, have those artists make hits, and so they can profit from those hits. And But the courts have said, and, and, and so has Congress interpreted this, which is with great rewards come great obligations. Mm. And that obligation is it's your obligation as the copyright holder to, to police the marketplace. It's not enough to just go to YouTube or Google or Vio who has you know millions if not billions of traffic and says, you need to stamp this out. And, and what the content holders are saying in return is, we can't bear the entire responsibility. There has to be a more equal calibration. And, and that's probably a worthwhile point, which is the judicial decisions have, have really placed the burden solely and squarely on the copyright holder. And the copyright holder is saying, maybe I'll carry the burden, but you have to give me some meaningful assistance because otherwise I'm stuck in this perpetual game of taking down one piece of material only to have it pop up on the very next site or, or sometimes on the very next day. So is the correct has the correct balance been struck? And is the current notice and takedown process really addressing online infringement? And I would say uh, one final you know, question about the notice and takedown si uh, situation in the wake of, I believe it was the Universal versus Lentz decision, uh, the Prince case. Yeah. How, how, how meaningful do the content creators actually consider fair use before they bring uh, the notice and takedown uh, comment? Request. Great question. Uh, and that is, I think the answer is prior to the Lens case, prior to what's known as the Dancing Baby case, the answer was they didn't at all. Um, but, you know, the, that court, even though the decision actually tried to address Universal and really Amicus brief stated concerns regarding kind of the pressing crush of a voluminous infringing content, where it said, listen, we're not saying that you cannot continue to use computer algorithms, if you're not allowed to use technology, try to filter this out. But you have to, as, a, as the statute requires, you have to have a good faith basis mm -hmm. to believe that, that the video doesn't constitute, or the material, in that case the video, doesn't constitute a fair use. So that's your obligation. And that, if I'm going to take the kind of internet service provider or the YouTube's position, which is, if you kind of have a take down or a shoot first mentality, you do run the risk of having, you know, ultimately censorship. If you just have wholesale removal of content first, so you take it down first and then you have to address the issue as to whether or not it's fair use, you really do run the risk of chilling First Amendment issues uh, or, or chilling free speech under the First Amendment. So there, there is, um, you know, one of the ongoing concerns is really do we have a backwards guilty until proven innocent approach that discourages fair use, which again kind of ties back into the very purpose of copyright again, which is this engine of free expression. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me, James. No, my pleasure. Thank you for, for your time. I appreciate it. I'm Christina Sauerborn, staff correspondent. Uh, and today uh, we're talking a little bit about uh, the trademark in issues uh, that have been experienced by the craft beer industry. I actually uh, wrote up a blog post about this, uh, which you can find on the Fordham IPLJ blog. 
Uh, and I'm here today with Jordan Greenberger, and Jordan's a uh, local Brooklyn attorney, uh, and he specializes in uh, intellectual property law, uh, and he represents clients in copyright, trademark, uh, and transactional matters, and also uh, some litigation there, too. Jordan, did I <laughs> accurately represent uh, what you do? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a pretty good uh, summary. Thank you. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I actually read, you know, as we were talking earlier about um, about all the the knowledge, the wealth of knowledge you have uh, with regard to the issues in this particular industry. Um, and uh, I, I know you've you've had a lot to say and written some stuff about this too. Um, what, uh, in your experience, do you find, um, are there any trademark issues you think are kind of unique to craft breweries, um, or anything you can kind of comment on that? Um, I think one of the unique things about trademark issues in the craft beer industry is really a numbers game, which is how many new craft breweries there are. There are so many new entrants to the marketplace all of the time. Um, so that it's very common for people to kind of run into each other in various spaces, especially in beer. And I guess this is true in other uh, food and beverage industries as well. But in beer, oftentimes the breweries, when they're coming up with their names, are, are, are playing off of the ingredients. Uh, you know, we were talking about, I wrote an article and we were talking offline about the black ops plates, um, ops, possibly referring to hops, which is one of the key ingredients in beer. Um, so, in ingredients, in colors, and tastes, and characteristics of the beer, it, it's very common, but um, there's obviously only so many variations that can be out there that people can think of. And um, the other thing is, is that, um, and this is not unique to the craft beer industry at all, but any new business oftentimes is not thinking about the legal implications of their actions when they first start things, right? So, um, I, I think it's very common for startups and, and new uh, smaller craft breweries to kind of get an education very early on in their business when they get a cease and desist letter from somebody uh, or when they encounter a trademark search. And, and at that point, they realize, oh, maybe we should do a search um, or a knockout or a clearance search. You know, they don't even know what the terminology is at the beginning, but yeah. uh, once they kind of are alerted to the issues and seek out counsel, you know, um, they know where to go. I think the biggest mistake, not the biggest mistake, but you, you find that some breweries are focused on investing time and money in, in um, branding their, their cans and bottles and having different merchandise like t-shirts and posters and all that stuff um, without really looking to see what else is out there to see if there's any sort of issues. Right, yeah. I mean, I think, and I know in at least sort of the interviews and, and the information that I've found you know, they're, they're on it sort of, we found this cool name that sounds catchy and, you know, it sounds really cute and a nice way to brand. Um, but then with, like you said, so many entrants to the marketplace, it sort of becomes this, you know, maybe we're not going to get our first choice because there's just so much out there and the likelihood that it's already been snagged. I mean, I think, I think I remember reading there, it's like they're running out of hop puns. <laughs> Right. I mean, listen, I, I think there are creative people and, uh, you know, anybody can come up with something new and novel and creative, but, uh, 
you know, I'll give you an example. Last night I was at an event in Brooklyn at Folk's Beer Brewery, and they had a bunch of breweries from uh, maybe like five or six local breweries there and a German brewery there. And I had never heard of a single one of the beers that was on tap. There was probably 15 beers on tap. And to me, that's kind of like a beer geek that was exciting to taste all of them. There were no labels. There were just handwritten uh, tags on the taps, you know. And, and that's exciting, but the names at that point were irrelevant to me. But you have to remember that the trademark law takes into account not the beer geeks and, and the beer snobs and people who are really in the industry. It's, it's the everyday consumer. When you're standing at the bottle shop, when you're at a bar, what do you see, what do you hear, and, and what's going to stand out and be unique so that you attract customers and also differentiate yourself from others in the marketplace? Yeah, definitely. And I actually, I have to say, I think that that's that's really interesting because i mean i know i know like you said like in trademark that's the analysis it's like the everyday you know the reasonable standard the you know the average consumer who's not necessarily going to know but then you also think about the people who have this passion for craft beer which again is not everyone but i think that that's especially like i think that that's a significant uh, attribute of the people who are, you know, going to be a large percentage of the people who are going to be pa patrons of the these breweries that are going to know quite a bit, and they're not going to mistake them. Um, do you find there's some pushback based on you know that analysis? I mean, because I know, like I, you know, I'm I'm pretty discerning. <laughs> I, I know people who have tried to make the argument but failed, and, and really it's because, you know, it's not just the consumer, it could be the bartender, maybe it's a new bartender and they mishear what you're saying and they bring you the wrong thing. Uh, you know, there's also the issue of the price point. So a lot of times, you know, I, I've represented financial related institutions and trademark matters and, and you encounter a cease and desist letter and infringement claim and you, and you scratch your head saying, well, nobody who's spending X hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on this product or service is going to confuse who they're purchasing the services from, they're, you know, what the source of the goods or services are. Beer, what are you spending? Five to ten dollars on, on, a, on a pint? You know, arguably if you're buying a large format bottle and it's in the 20 to 30 dollar range, you're maybe a little bit more discerning of a consumer. But, you know, something that's at such a low price point and really geared towards the masses rather than highly specialized industries, it's just a really tough argument to make and one that I haven't seen be successful. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, it's very interesting and I think that that's especially, I, I know, uh, I'm trying to remember, um, based on my work this summer, I actually did some trademark work over the summer. Beer um, is in the same, a class of trademarks as I think other beverages, right? So it's wine and I think um, like soda and other other stuff, right? Do you, do you find that that's also sort of complicates it a little bit more? Um, well, I'll give you an example, okay? There was a trademark infringement action, I think up in Syracuse or somewhere upstate New York this, this past year involving uh, hard root beer and, and uh, a beer and you have to you know the lines are merging <laughs> you know what whether it's beer or cider or, or uh, hard sodas or whatever you want to call them the lines are merging and, and people are kind of expanding what they make and how they overlap um, 
So, and you know, you see, I had a beer a few months ago. I think it was Brooklyn Brewery had a special uh, seasonal release that they did that was aged in uh, bourbon barrels. Okay, well, now you're crossing into spirits and liquors. And, and with that type of growth and creativity in the industry, it's not surprising that um, there are issues that come up, not just limited to, oh, I make beer, you make beer, you know, you're interfering with my rights. It's I make beer, you make. Or, I'm sorry, you make beer, I make coffee, or whatever the beverage might be, and, and you see overlaps. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, a, it's crazy out there <laughs> right now. Um, so, um, just shifting gears for a moment, um, what uh, are some, I guess, common inquiries you get from your clients, and how do you sort of approach um, I guess people who are, are sort of looking to go into this industry, but maybe the broader beverage industry uh, generally? Um, I get a lot of questions. You know, I, it's being an attorney is in part, uh, I think it's your duty and obligation to educate your clients as to uh, what the risks are, what the opportunities are. You know, when it comes to trademark, frankly, one of the first questions I get is what's this going to cost me? <laughs> and um, a lot of, I, I, yeah, but that's a real business concern for, mm-hmm. for a new business or somebody who's just expanding a product line. You know, what is this going to cost me to do a knockout search, to file the application? If we get an office action, what does that mean? What does it even mean that it's not guaranteed that we're going to get the trademark and how do we deal with that? So cost is a big concern um, in the trademark space, having to explain descriptiveness and how uh, acquiring secondary meaning plays into that. Uh, and again, that's not just true with, with beer, that a lot of people in the food and beverage industry who have products or brand names that uh, incorporate elements of what the product is. You know, it's brewery or ice cream or creamery, you know, there's, there's anything that you kind of have to explain that um, you need to differentiate yourself if it's not just a novel or a fanciful name. Um, you know, regulations, I, I'm not a regulatory lawyer, but there are tons and tons of regulations on alcohol uh, and how it's distributed and taxation issues, uh, insurance. I mean, craft beer is no different than any new, any other business. And if you're new and starting, you have to think about insurance, uh, branding, making sure your uh, contracts with various vendors are in place. And you know, especially if you have partners internally, not uncommon for people to say, oh, we're gonna go into business together, but then they never formally incorporate or come up with an operating agreement. Um, so, you know, from a lawyer's perspective, it's interesting to work with people in the craft beer industry, um, but if they're running a real business, it's no different than any other business other than some unique elements having to do with um, regulatory issues for alcohol. So you've, I I mean, I mean you've, you've, you've learned, I guess, in your experiences enough that, I mean, you're taking all that into account when you're, when you're advising them, right? I mean, like, I, I even thought about, there was, what was the really, it was the Sierra Nevada, I think the Lagunitas issue, and I think there was a lot of, I think, back and forth online, sort of, as soon as this, because it blew up, as soon as people found out about it, it, it became this whole big thing of like people siding with like one brand over another. And I mean, I I would have to wonder 
also the extent to which like the court of public opinion kind of comes into it too sure and um actually i think that's one of the great things about the emerging craft beer industry is the level of camaraderie uh, among people in the industry and um you know since it is very educational to new entrants in the market realizing that um you know everybody is in it together to kind of grow the industry now of course i understand the other side too of having to protect your rights and enforce them um so I, I will say that uh, in craft beer, and also I see this in fashion, uh, reputation plays a large part in driving people's actions and uh, consumer response. So um, that is certainly an element in the craft beer industry that you see that can help resolve issues before they escalate into formal you know, cease and desist letters or, or lawsuits or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Um... So uh, just before we uh, wrap up, um, Jordan, I was just wondering um, if you have any like overall recommendations, and I would even just say taking like our audience into account um, for uh, the industry, but also you know for anyone I think thinking of maybe kind of getting into this arena with trademarks, trademark litigation, if you have any sort of broad thoughts about that. Uh, I think for anybody who um, is a law student or a young attorney thinking about uh, focusing on it, I congratulate you, and I think that's a great uh, step to take. I would say, going back to what I said about it it being a business, that it's important to get a broad experience and have a broad understanding of what it means to be a lawyer and what issues arise, um, because um, if you're going to counsel clients, it's helpful to have just a broad experience to know that uh, they're running a business. They might have employment issues. They might have insurance issues. But uh, I know that's not what a lot of young attorneys or uh, law students want to hear. Everybody wants to get right into it. So I think I think go for it and uh, best of luck. That's awesome. Do you, um, in your I guess experience with these companies, do you do you kind of refer them when they have these other issues? I mean. Do you do you counsel them if they have, you know? I know. You well, there's this expression, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> um, I think it's uh, I think it's important to be honest with your clients about what you can and can't do, and if you are on your own, having a network of people that you can refer things to, um, or if you're at a firm, you know, either find a firm that has a broad practice area that you can help out in, or uh, network. You know, it's just important to have a strong network of people, uh, both professionally and personally, that you can rely upon. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, well, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really, it was You're just welcome. terrific talking to you. Um, you know, as I said, I, I'm just really, this topic has just really fascinated me, and um, it's just great to talk to a practitioner who has got some real world experience and perspective on this. So thank you again.